Okay, in this episode, we're joined by Sho Yang of Hello. Lower Carbon Capital. Glad um, to be here. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I mean, he came all the way from Redwood City, which is a big deal. So <laughs> it's like 20 minutes away. It's not, not that big people, of a deal. Not many people, some people are hesitant for the in-person stuff. So it's well, cool. It's cool that we're able to do this. The, the warehouse gave slight murder vibes. <laughs> that was some of the concern, but overall, glad to be here in person. Overall, the lab is cool. It's yeah. a cool, yeah. Well, I mean, if cool you're going to murder someone in, a, in a back area, like there, there's no tarp on the floor here. So that <laughs> put me to rest. Yeah. Uh, man, but we, we're going to go through, I think we've got about an hour set. Cool. Um, is there any place you want to start? I was thinking we could talk about the, your early days. Sure. I, mean, I know your father was an immigrant from northern China. Yep. And I'm sure that played a huge influence in your life. So yeah. what was it like growing up? <laughs> it, it was, uh, I mean, a lot of who I am as a person is because of the way I grew up, right? I am right smack dab in the middle of that generational shift being an immigrant, right? right? Having to have one foot in the old ways of doing things and also then growing up mostly here in the States, trying to acclimate to what, you know, an American lifestyle is. And it's probably at the core of who I am, right? Um, you know, I, it's, it's how my parents were. It's the fact that we were very, very poor and I had to grow up with a scarcity mindset. It's the fact that we're very uh, Chinese and it's not okay to talk about feelings or be weak or, you know, that focus on survival. Like, I think all of those factors kind of shaped you okay. know, who I am. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about any of that stuff if it's useful. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, what do you think is the immigrant mentality versus the, like, Chinese mentality, mm. if you could separate it? Because my family's Italian, same yeah. kind of thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, conceal the emotions, work as hard as you can. Yeah. Be grateful for the opportunities. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. I, I think the immigrant portion specifically for me helped, you know, create some of that energy that I have. And, mm -hmm. you know, these things are oftentimes a double-edged sword. On one hand, I grew up with enormous privilege that literally a billion people in like the early 80s did not have. Right. Right. And my, my parents never made me forget it. Right. <laughs> I was like, you know, like, oh man, they tell me stories of how much they suffered and how much my grandparents suffered during the Cultural Revolution. And now all of a sudden there I was in upstate New York and libraries and schools right. and, you know, the, the endless opportunity that the American dream promised. And with that comes a feeling of like, oh my God, I didn't choose this. I kind of just want to be normal, but what the hell do you want me to do with this information? <laughs> but at the same time, there's also this feeling of fear that I could never possibly live up to all these things that are being thrust in front of me, right? right. Like, like, what could I possibly do to justify these opportunities that I've been given? And it's like a blessing. And I, you know, I, I don't know this firsthand, but I imagine it's similar to what people with like survivor's guilt feel, right? right. Like why was my grandfather persecuted and had a shit life, but all of a sudden I get to go and eat like, you know, Foster's Freeze, right? No, for there, sure. There, there's, no, there's no rational easing of those kind of feelings. But I think on the positive side, a lot of the good that comes out of that is there was always something more I wanted out of my life. Mm -hmm. right? I couldn't see myself just, you know, optimizing ad clicks for Google. And you know, no offense right. to anyone that does that, but- No, I understand what you mean. Yeah, that, that just wasn't ever going to salve this deeper desire I had. If, if I didn't go out there and make a lot of positive impact for the world, mm -hmm. I think I'd forever feel haunted and be ashamed of what I had done, right? I couldn't, I couldn't live up to what my parents wanted, what my country wanted, all that stuff, right? No, for sure. And I, I think to your point, there was this line I heard where it's like, hard things lead to good things a lot of the time. Sure. And yeah, and I think in some sense, to your point, all the suffering that's happened before, mm -hmm. why don't you try and put yourself, not in those kinds of mm -hmm. situations, but expose yourself to high levels of expectations, et cetera, to, yeah, 
get that fulfillment, get that pride, get those achievements that perhaps, I mean, it's a, not every story with this kind of beginning has a positive ending. Fair enough. Right. And I, again, I feel incredibly blessed that I can afford three therapists and I do like psychedelics on the side to right. try to like, you know, ease and hopefully become healthier as a human being. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like part of my brain will always be trapped in like 1980s China and <laughs> right. the world that my parents would talk to me about. Right. But I'm also trying to be present and I'm trying to realize where I am today and figure out what's the best I can do for the world. Given for sure. who I am. So talk to us about how you got like exposed to the journey and like where you had where you're at now with lower mm-hmm. carbon. Yeah. But yeah, I think you did quite a few business ventures mm-hmm. in China as well. Yeah. Um, how did, how did that kind of shape you? Maybe we can <laughs> yeah. talk about that as well. I mean, essentially because of the way I grew up, most of my professional career, I've tried to answer one fundamental question, which is where's this magical special place in the world that can channel this weird energy I have and hopefully even maximize it to do right. the most good in the world. And for a long time, the answer was, well, go find these unsexy old industries that no one was innovating in and just try to make something out of it, right? right? And I moved back to China. I got really curious about things like recycling and plasma disintegration of trash and metal casting and manufacturing, you know, like a lot of pollution, a lot of dirty things, a lot yeah. of human suffering right. in these kind of industries. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, I can do something about this. I can bring in software. I can bring in hardware. I can bring in innovative new business practices. And mm-hmm. like, let's just see what we could do. You know, some of that stuff did well. Some of that stuff absolutely did not go well. Right. <laughs> but I think ultimately I walked away from my entrepreneurial journey feeling a bit of disappointment, there was this false expectation of absolution, right? That if I could somehow find- What, what does that mean, absolution? Well, just like the, the monkey would be off my back. Like some okay. of these like feelings I've been growing up with since childhood, like the you know, the weight of the expectation would be lifted. Right. Perhaps, right. But of course, as most people who've gone through this knows, like there, there is no absolution, right? right. I, I, you know, all the feelings I had before I was an entrepreneur persisted after I'd been an entrepreneur. Okay. And on top of that, when you get really close to the big problems in the world, you start to realize how truly gigantic they are. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not some like Elon Musk style genius that can form like two or three major <laughs> right. world shaking companies. So venture was really a way for me to 10X mm-hmm. anything I'd done before that, right? right? It's a privilege to get to work with maybe hundreds, if not thousands of great entrepreneurs in the course of a career, right. fighting on the front lines, building the things that are greatly going to improve the world. That's really, really awesome. What, what was that moment of reflection like when you realized that, because I mean, you went through YC as well. Yeah. You, sorry, you, I mean, you accomplished a lot, right? And I feel like sometimes when people reach those points, like you said, they feel the same, mm-hmm. right? They expect this eureka moment yeah. of like, you know, adrenaline or yeah. whatever else and yeah. it, does, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's exactly as you described. There, there's this like emptiness and there's this like expectation for something that never fully materializes. And, and for me, it was the crystallization of this concept, right? Right. I have a real hard time helping myself sometimes. Okay. <laughs> right. But one of the ways I know of to help myself is to help others. Right, for sure. And in a selfish way, indirectly, as I as I help founders, as I help you know friends, some of the things I say to them gradually trickle back into my very stubborn and thick skull. Eh. And and for me, whether I consciously knew it or not at that moment, there was something about that that was deeply energizing. Right. And when I reflected on all the things I'd done in my life up to that point, 
it was the helping people part that was the most energizing for me. Right. Like being able to fight on the front lines with these founders, coming from that perspective of empathy mm-hmm. and being able to really help them, not only with the challenges of building a business, but the personal challenges of being a founder and the stress and the expectations that come along with that. Yeah. That felt really cool. No, for sure. Especially with the VC side of things, like for example, being a capital allocator in mm-hmm. an emerging market, like mm-hmm. imagine how much, you know, wealth that you can give to people if just a couple startups emerge and blossom into big companies. For sure. But I mean, to, to be honest, even today when, when you say those things, uh, I feel very uncomfortable with that characterization okay. because, I mean, I, I ultimately have a fairly cynical view of this stuff, right? Okay. Most of the systems in the world, and VC is no exception, uh, are deeply exploitive. Right. And okay. I mean, that, that's just because we're human beings and, you know, we're complicated. But one part of that is we like things to be easy and we like power and we like to leverage that against people. Right. So much of venture has been finding people that are on some levels like kind of messed up. There, there's, a, there's a mental illness component of venture that I don't think people talk about a lot. Right? Okay. This is why a lot of those CEOs are characterized as being sociopaths, right? Something happened to these people to make them able to tie their ego in an unhealthy way to the things that they do professionally, to be able to run through walls and do the nigh impossible. Right. And our world can twist that just to solely build a massively profitable business. And cool, but it's not necessary that we leave out the other part, which is, can we help turn these people into happier compassionate human beings. And my argument would be, if you can do both sides of it, that's ultimately actually really good for business. Right. You have a founder that can leverage all those like, you know, positive sides of that, but also create a trajectory for them where they can live and be happy with themselves. Yeah. And of course, this is a personal journey for me, which is why it resonates with me. So No, but but even from the employee side, Mm -hmm. right? I I mean, I don't think this was the most novel quote by like Richard Branson, but he said, yeah, like happy employees make a great company. Mm -hmm. Happy employees make great products. Absolutely. So Absolutely. um, I mean, what do you think of that? Like, this was actually a question at the end of the list, but maybe I can ask it now. Like, if you were to ask everyone in the venture industry (laughs) to start and stop doing one thing, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Starting up being one thing. I mean, there's a lot obviously here. I, I think the 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 start would be to start having deeper relationships with their founders, right? You know, position yourself as the kind of genuine partner where if if there's a call to be had mm-hmm. at two AM, yeah, the, the founder is willing to pick up the phone, give you that ring, and do that kind of heart to heart. Right. That's a special thing. And I think that's enriching not only as a VC, but also that's enriching as a founder. Um, and if we can all have that kind of relationship, a lot of this stuff would be a lot easier. The stop part, I don't know, probably related to that first thing is stop treating this as a transactional kind of business, okay. right? Both among VCs themselves, but also just among people generally. It's easy to do it that way, but it doesn't have to be, right? Okay. There's a richness here. Why do, why do you think it is so transactional in some respects? Like just because of, I mean, in all fairness, like the investors are under a lot of stress sure. from, you know, there's the customer relationship standpoint mm-hmm. with the actual startups that they've invested in already, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of a sales gig. Like sure. you have to find the next one. Sure. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I, I've never done venture before. Mm. From the outside looking in, that's, yeah. that's what it appears as. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot we could say about that. Well, it's hard to do what I'm describing, right? Like, it, it's hard to build those kind of personal relationships. Right. 
almost intrinsically it means putting a piece of yourself at risk in order to have that kind of closeness with someone. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in kind of an ironic way, that's the part of risk that I think a lot of people don't understand. They also have to underwrite being a VC. Okay, It's relationships at the end of the day. Right. And so putting yourself out there and getting close with someone is intrinsically a part of the job. It's not just the technical risk or the market risk or yeah. whatever financial risk is out there. And so that difficulty of crossing that personal threshold mm-hmm. makes it very, very difficult. On the other side, though, you know, we, we can't lose sight of the overall context, which is this is a very interesting and different slice of our civilization. Most of the world is characterized by kind of a Gaussian distribution versus venture is clearly a power law, Pareto curve kind of thing. Okay. A small amount of things. Do you mind unpacking that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a small number of things will make the disproportionate impact, right? Right. In a portfolio, one or two portfolio companies account for the majority of the return. Yes. In yeah. venture, it would be a handful of venture capitalists actually find the right things and actually right. understand what they're doing. You know, to, to put it less charitably, I would say probably 90% of the people in VC don't know what they're doing. Right. <laughs> the Vinod line. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And, and so then to go back to your question, it, it's like, in a way, things are as they should be. Most people will not understand or have the ability to cross into that deeper threshold. And I suppose the argument I'm making is the ones that do will be the superior venture capitalists. Okay. I say that from a self serving perspective, of course. So. Right. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about the time that you spent at 50 years sure. and then what sparked the move to lower carbon. Yeah. Um, a lot of students listen to this as well. Yeah. So maybe in talking about your journey with yeah. those firms, if you could provide advice for sure. how to break in, that would be really cool too. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was very, very fortunate. Uh, you know, I, I knew the partners at 50 years for a long period of time. I, I'm pretty sure I was the first or second check they ever wrote when they started the fund. That's awesome. So I've known them from both sides, both okay. as you know, uh, both as investors that were uh, incredibly supportive to me mm-hmm. in my entrepreneurial journey. And then later on as, as mentors that helped me become you know, what I hope to be a, a great investor, right? Right. Um, and there's, a, there's so much fun in doing like the early stage deep tech work, right? Yeah. You could wake up one morning and understand all the latest going ons in cell therapy. And then by lunchtime, you're reading about underwater robots that are right. going to help us build offshore wind. And then in the evening time, close that out with mm-hmm. you know synthetic biology and the future of the cell as the manufacturing backbone of civilization. Yeah. And that's really, really, really awesome. And it gave me an unparalleled way to learn a lot about not only the craft of venture capital, but just be on the cutting edge of right. what human beings are capable of doing. The, the the kind of challenging side of it is there's a lot of context switching in that. Yeah. And I think the deeper I got into the venture world, the more I started to ask the question, well, what are my superpowers, right? Like, what are the things I could really get into doing? And what did I really want to focus my time on? Right. And increasingly, the answer was climate. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that curing cancer or doing some of these other things aren't really, really important. But right. I, I started to feel this emerging threat that, if the world were to be destabilized, we'd lose a lot of the opportunities to solve some of these really big and important problems. And the biggest destabilizing force in the world today is probably climate change. Right. And I personally wanted to say, hey, like this is the thing. This is the thing that we mentioned in the beginning, that special place that I could really channel, expand, and focus my energy around mm-hmm. so that I can make the most difference possible. And so I wanted to take a focused look to see what I could do within climate specifically. Okay. No, that's awesome. And I mean, so one thing you mentioned there about building the relationship mm-hmm. when you were starting at the company, yeah. like 
there's a couple of people I've had on. Like there was someone that started a company with or that got investment from Founders Fund, and they later became a principal there as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, talk about Delhi, and I assume. <laughs> uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jeff was an awesome guest. He's a, does his own thing at Bedrock now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe. This ties back into what you said as well. Like most people in venture probably shouldn't be in venture as well. But what would you say to the student that says, you know what, I I don't want to start a company, yeah. but I really identify with what you say. Like yeah. this outsize impact yeah. by, you know, being able to give people money that sure. I wouldn't be able to do per sure. se, yeah. but I can support them. Sure. I can be that helping hand. I mean, the, the first thing which I always caveat is like most generalized advice is bad advice. Right. Right. Where <laughs> yeah. you, you, this question you're posing is deeply personal, right? To the people thinking about this. It and, is nuanced, but how did you how did you think about that? I mean, when when talking to people in your circles, we have the luxury to explore to explore a lot more in the way modern life works and the way the U.S. works, like. From my background and that scarcity mindset, this is the biggest change from being able to grow up in this country, right? Mm-hmm. You can go out there and fuck up a couple of times. You right. can make some bad decisions, <laughs> yeah. right? Just just do it in earnest, right? Yeah. My simple framework for most things is to ask, how does this fuck up? And for someone thinking about a career in venture, it fucks up if you're self-delusional. Okay. If you're, if you're lying to yourself on some level around why you really want to do this right. and what really energizes and de-energizes you. Yeah. There's a lot of people who see it and there's the, you know, the quote unquote prestige and the, you know, the money that comes with it. Yeah. But it's tough work. Right. And nobody that I know that's great in this business has the stamina to go all the way through if it's just about prestige right. and money. Yeah. You got to be really energized by it. And so, you know, for the individuals out there thinking about it, right, just don't be self-delusional. Right. Like, you know, put it all out in front of yourself. Understand the different feelings and the reasons why. And if if it seems like it makes sense, well, try it. Right. right. No, absolutely. And talk to people. Talk to people who don't give shitty generalized answers like I am. Talk to people who know you specifically, who know you well enough to throw some stones at some of these premises that you might be talking about, right? Like, right. These are it's why important. We have friends and family who aren't afraid to like you know punch us in the face a couple of times, right? <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. the valuable thing. When when you were in school, did you kind of notice that misalignment between what people wanted to be versus what they enjoyed doing? Absolutely. Yeah. And I I fell prey to this myself, right? You know, coming from that like immigrant background, again, absolution rears its head again. I th- th- there was this lie I told myself. Hey, if if I can just make like six figures, nothing else in the world would matter again. Right. I would have made it. I would have felt like I made my parents proud. I have some kind of brand, right? Right. Yeah, and it's it, it's alluring. And when you're young, it seems even credible. Right. But, you know, you go through these experiences and hopefully you learn and everyone takes away something different from that. And I'm not discounting the fact that some people might be super satisfied by that. And that's great. But you walk that journey and you figure out what makes you happy. That's one of the most powerful and interesting things about being young and growing up. Right. 100%. Well, let's, what, what sparked the transition from 50 years to lower carbon? Uh, It's, it's, it's this deep and un- quietable voice that wanted me to deep dive into climate. Like, okay. Like increasingly, this was the only thing I wanted to look at day right. in and day out. And, and really, if we back up, it probably started many years earlier when I had children. Okay. And it creates this really monumental shift, I think, in how you see the world. On one hand, it changed the way I thought about working hard. Right. I mean, like I've, 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 I've done the grind. I've done the 80 to 100 hour weeks. 
But now, more so than ever, there was a comparative force, right? I could be working or I could be with my kids. Right. And I see their eyes light up and all the things that I could do with them. And I know that it's, it's, it's sacred and special. Yeah. And so every hour I spend away from my kids better be super, super worth it. Right. And then connecting the dots there between the work and then the impact that I could have shaping their future. Yeah. Every moment that I don't spend with my two boys, I am actively building a world that is better for them. Right. And that feels super, super, super important. Mm -hmm. You know, on some level, at some point, I'm going to have to reconcile the fact that I probably could have spent more time with them. Right. And they may even, you know, accuse me of being too absent sometime. Right. Maybe I'm just covering my ass at least to say, <laughs> hey, daddy was busy trying to build you a better future. Right. And there, there, there's, there's a big aspect of that is that is genuine. And, yeah. I, and I want them to understand what is actually worth working hard for. Yeah, you know, 100%. Yeah. I mean, do you have any, again, I know that the, the advice that we're going to give is very nuanced, but how, how did you kind of think about that? Like work-life balance in a sense. To me, work-life balance is a trade-off. And I don't mean going to the beach or mm -hmm. going out on Friday night yeah. party. I, I mean, you know, calling your mom, you know, spending yeah. time with your kids. Like yeah. those kinds of intangible things. Yeah. A lot of it is how, right? A lot of it is how. It's 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 too simplistic to break this down into hours. It okay. matters, right? There's a certain threshold. You got to be for there sure. for the kids. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but one of the joys of venture for me always has been the flexibility the job affords. Right. Right. Like my wife and I have this rule where I go and I pick up the kids and I spend the evening time routines with them and I try not to miss, you know, two nights in a row ever. Right. Right. And I'm very lucky. My, my job affords me the flexibility to <clears> do that. I can pick and choose when to work. I can be on back online again at 8.30 or 9 and right. know, crank through midnight if I need to be, right? That's that's something special about the job. The more difficult part, though, I think is to be present. Right. Because venture is not the kind of job you ever clock out of. Yeah, for You're sure. always thinking about things. You, If you do it well, I argue, the, the founder's deepest fears and issues become your issues and you live with them right. and you shoulder those burdens too. And that's part of what makes me hopefully good at the job, which mm. is that, you know, when I'm taking the shower and having those inspirational thoughts, as yeah. weirdly as often they come in the bathroom, you know, I am carrying that load of what is best for my founders and how do I bring unfair advantages to them. But then to be able to flick the switch and say, I'm having a wonderful, peaceful dinner with my wife. Yeah. I'm there in that moment with my kids. As no, they that's the hard part. I agree that's the you. hard part. Yeah. And so, but if you can do that, it's very possible to have what I would call a good balance. Right. Okay. Well, let, controversial question. Yeah. Let's say you were to leave the industry. Sure. What would you miss the most? What would you miss the least? It's it's the personal relationships for sure, right? You know, I I'm I'm not here to invest in businesses or to, you know, you know, back companies. I'm I'm, right. I'm here to support founders and to not be able to do that would be like ripping out a, a big 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 piece of my soul. Okay. And I, I don't, you know, I, I probably have to fill that void with like helping people in some other way. But right. like it's intrinsic to my nature to have to help someone. Um, again, because of my own pathology. What I wouldn't miss, I mean, there's a lot of bullshit in the job. <laughs> <laughs> there's still a lot of context switching, you know, there's all the, the posturing and the hollowness of VC that you just kind of have to go with. Right. Um, I wouldn't miss any of that stuff. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't miss... I wouldn't miss some of the moments where I couldn't be 100% aligned with the founders. 
right? right? You know, the, 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 those hard moments where their interests and yours diverge around fundraising or round size or ownership, right? right? You know, the, the fantasy is always to be perfectly aligned with this person you're building this deep relationship with. Uh, okay. One thing I've heard from people as well when it comes to venture is, to your point, it's super intellectually stimulating. You get to look at underwater robots. You get to yeah. look at, you know, different kinds of climate tech implementations, whether it be in manufacturing or fashion mm -hmm. yeah. and stuff like that. However, I've heard it's a very, like, lone wolf game, in a sense, where you're spending a lot of time by yourself. And it can kind of be tough sometimes to, you know, when you only have 15-minute call after 15-minute call after 15-minute call, it can be tough to, like, you know, build those connections with people. Do you agree? I, I, I don't. Okay. And I feel like that is a choice. And unfortunately, again, you know, I think a lot of the industry has gotten this wrong. You're not incentivized to work together at a lot of the firms because of just how venture is structured, right? A lot of these firms, it's like a group of mercenaries sharing a pool of weapons, right. essentially, right? <laughs> okay. You know, ostensibly you're part of this like fund and the fund structure unites you, but to exactly what you said, right? You go out there and you do your thing. Maybe you get together to talk about it in committee and your partners can watch your back a little bit and, you know, throw some orthogonal thinking your way. I gotcha. But that's kind of it. And, you know, how you get paid and carry, all that stuff incentivizes this very lone wolf mercenary approach. Right. There's no rule saying you have to set things up that way. And I think a lot of the better places to work have a very different kind of culture, have a very different kind of structure where you're actually incentivized to work together. Right. And I think increasingly, especially in deep tech, especially in things like climate, where you're at the very edge of something that is very hard to define. Right. right? I, I can't tell you what climate is necessarily. Right? right. I think anyone that pretends to know exactly what it is is probably lying. Right. And so in that kind of environment, it's much more fun to do this as a team and to be actually incentivized to work together and to say, mm -hmm. hey, if one of my colleagues finds the next great founder, we all win and I can go and support that and help each right. other and, and do that in a very deep and meaningful way. Yeah. And it's those human connections that ultimately make the job sustainable for me. Right. And it's the one of the reasons why I love working at Lower Carbon. It's because the fund is set up that way. We're all incentivized to collaborate, to work together. I get to manage a group of amazing associates and they tell me how I'm wrong all the time. And <laughs> that's, that's awesome. wonderful. And that, that's part of the magic. So how, how did Lower Carbon get that right? You touched on it a couple ways mm. there, but I mean, what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, uh, no two days are the same. Yeah, I get it. Hard to say a typical day. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach out to and find all the most formidable founders who want to build something in climate. Right. And so part of the day is always that kind of searching process, mm -hmm. however you want to do it. Um, part of the day is also helping our existing founders succeed. And so making sure we understand what are the one or two critical things that will unlock the most potential for them in the course of the week or the month or the quarter. Right. And then finding out who are the best people either within the team or within our broader network to actually bring those unfair advantages to the fore. Right. And so you're, you're just kind of like mixing and matching all these kind of different dynamics. Mm -hmm. At the core, you ask about how we were able to do it. Well, we want to create a magical place where if your intent on doing the most meaningful climate work possible, right. you want to come and talk to Lower Carbon. For sure. Whether it's as a part of the firm or as one of our portfolio founders. Yeah, and, and that comes from exactly some of the things that we've talked about so far. Understanding what it is to make people feel fulfilled and happy mm -hmm. and feel relevant. Right. And that's, that's really the blessing of this era we live in. 
I think our parents' generation had this concept that you had to sacrifice, right? Make good money, but you might not like your job. Right. Yeah, easy to make that trade-off. Today, it is 100% possible to do really meaningful work, work with the best people in the world, and get paid great money. Right. If we can really bring that to fruition, we solve the talent problem right away. Mm-hmm. And I think that creates the dynamic that we're talking about right now. And then is, so I actually don't know the answer to this. Is lower carbon fully based in the Bay Area? Is there a remote element to it? Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty remote. Um, okay. um, th- 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 there's a smattering of us in the LA area. There's a bunch of us here in the Bay Area. There's a bunch of us in New York. And there's a right. few of us in Boston as well. That's awesome. Yeah. And so people get to do the best work in the best way, in the best place that they choose to. Right. Of course, we get together regularly and we love each other's company, but it's part of the part of the freedom that comes along with the job and right. the flexibility. Okay. Do you have any opinion on remote work? Again, this this is a how thing. It, it's too easy to say like remote work bad, you know, in person good. Right. <laughs> it's it, it's complicated, right? It, it's all the how about, well, what are the downsides and challenges of building a remote team, right? Mm-hmm. How do you balance some of the good and bad that comes with it? Do you have to be remote first? Do you not make people feel left out? How do you still create that cohesion? Mm -hmm. Versus being in person, right? The immediacy of it and the intimacy and the personal aspects of it, right? And so, and every team is different. Again, the the hand-wavy generalized answer doesn't look at the units that make up for the solution, right? We're talking about individual human lives, where they are, who they are, what their personal preferences are, and taking all that stuff into account, right? As a founder, as an ops person, like this stuff is exciting to think about the org as an organism, you know, cells working together and how you chain them up and make them, you know, cooperate and be aligned. Like that's, that's the interesting stuff we're talking about. And of course, there's no one single configuration that works. Mm. No, that makes sense. I mean, going back to geographies, I, you actually said, I'm going to pull up the quote here, but you said Silicon Valley represents a failure in our civilization. Why should this innovative spirit be constrained to this one area? Right. Do you think that's changing? I think it is. And I think gradually we're democratizing what makes what we do here fairly special. And I think Silicon Valley, you know, it will, it will remain special for a long time. Right. But I think people are catching on and they should be around why this dynamic has produced so many great businesses and people and innovation. Right. And as, as a species, we should want to duplicate that everywhere. Mm. Um, but it's also unique in that it was born out of a tremendous moment of plenty, right. you know, and, 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 you know, the, the luxury of to take risks and the legacy of places like Stanford and the helpfulness of it, right? Mm-hmm. It would be a mistake <clears throat> to try to take a carbon copy of Silicon Valley and bring it to like Tokyo or Munich, right? right? Yeah. You know, again, you have to really understand the culture and the context of these mm-hmm. places and figure out how do you embed these ingredients right. in the right way for that kind of setting. Is there a place you've observed that, to your point, isn't a carbon copy, but has their own kind of vibrant yeah. ecosystem? Is there a city or yeah. like a particular you know, state? Yeah, a, a lot. Or even of, abroad? Yeah, a, a lot of different places. I mean, the, the one that comes to my mind is always Shenzhen. And I, you know, I, I was lucky to spend many, many years there in a very special time for the city. But you, you see a lot of similar dynamics, right? Uh, you know, th- there's always a joke that there's no natives in Shenzhen. It's all people coming from all around China oh, really? and Asia yeah. to just like, you know, do interesting work. And it's full of hustlers and, right. you know, gamblers and dreamers <laughs> yeah. and, you know, all these kind of fun things, right? 
And, you know, that, 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 that tenacity and the kind of attractive, um, you know, the kind of people it attracts create the same mm -hmm. kind of dynamic that you find in the Valley, uh, the risk-taking attitudes. But then also what I find as an undercurrent is because everyone is new, mm -hmm. you have that linkage of being willing to help each other. Right. And for me, that's always been at the core of what Silicon Valley is. Right. Right. You know, sure, a lot of people talk about the different kinds of people that gravitate toward it, but it's always this linkage between generations, the helpfulness that stands out for me. Um, you know, you, you read the Steve Jobs biography, he talks about how all these CEOs of established companies were willing to just talk to him. Right. When yeah. I was going to school here, you know, someone from Sequoia came and just spent like half a day with me. Right. And I was like, I don't understand why you're doing this. Like, yeah. I'm, no, absolutely. I'm fucking nobody. Right. right? And there's something really special about that, that people would go back and after they learn these kind of lessons, share it with that community. Right. And in terms of knowledge gain and growth, that is, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, in the course of human history, we idealize things like the Library of Alexandria. Right. It was supposed to be this like magical place where the collective knowledge of human civilization was encapsulated. Right. Yeah. And that's wonderful, but venture, and again, this is a failure, is still opaque. Okay. You can't read a book and become a great investor, and you right. can't read a book and become a great founder. Okay. You know, so much of that knowledge is still, I don't know, tribal and story driven, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know the exact word for it, but right. it, it takes almost this like proximity and community to transmit, and because of that, that linkage is so important. Right. The fact that. You know, someone who is maybe five, 10 years ahead of you on the journey right. will stop and loop back and help some of those fellow travelers who are just getting started. Okay. Shenzhen had that same kind of feeling, again, because a lot of people were doing it for the first time and there was that shared empathy there. Right. But that creates this kind of perpetual cycle that makes for a really, really vibrant community. So do, do that, that, top, that point of transparency, do you think that will change? Because there is your point, there are so few factors in mm -hmm. the early stages to go off of. I mm -hmm. mean, if you look at publicly traded company, yeah. you have a 10K, yeah. you can look at the cash flows, yeah. like that kind of stuff is very yeah. easy yep. relative to, you know, a pitch for, yeah. I think, what did YC do? Like five minute pitches yeah. and they yeah. determine yeah. The, yeah, the application process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like it's a question of degree, right? How, how much of this can be productized or shared in a, in a very interesting way. Right. Um, but I think a good portion could be, and you know, to, to the example of YC, I think YC has done a great job doing it, right? Mm. And that's helped create and train uh, a generation of great founders. Right. But it, it's hard. It, it's hard because as we've been talking about it, so much of it is also personal. Mm. Because again, this is, this is a people-driven business, right? You're, you're, you're finding modern day Cleopatra's and Alexander the Great, right. <laughs> like people who can do the nigh impossible. And more than that, coupling them with the right kind of partner to support them and right. mentor them and train them. And so much of that is still kind of like squishy. And it's why I don't believe things like, you know, AI will help in therapy or some of the other aspects of life that inquire that deeper personal connection. Right. There, there's still an inherent struggle to scale things like that. Okay. Yeah. Going back to some of the lower carbon stuff, um, what kind of investing do you do within like the climate tech vertical? Mm. 
the good kind, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I still cringe a little bit at the word investing. Uh, it's, I, I, I don't think of myself as, as an investor, right? I, I'm here to support founders, first okay. and foremost. I'm not here to like, you know, invest in businesses. I'm, I'm always here to support founders. And I suppose that is the ultimate answer to the question. Like, I don't, I don't have any larger thesis. I, I consider myself kind of an idiot, and that's the best way I know of how to do the job. Well, I mean, humility is important. So it's that beginner's mindset, walking into every single pitch, hearing it for the first time, not bringing any of my biases, and just really trying to understand from a first principles perspective, like, what is this? Right. And in the, especially in the early stages, it's, it's all, it's all people, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here mostly to try to find people and understand how to support them. Like right. that's, that's what it is. What, what's something counterintuitive? Like when you first began in the industry, you thought it was one way, but it was another. Um, I think it's probably the importance of technology. There's a lot of great technology out there, but if it's not coupled to a strong team, right, and you know, like the characters and the personalities right. that are necessary to make it a reality, even the best tech doesn't have a bright future. And right. it's a little bit sad, and I, I've definitely learned this the hard way many, many times, but it's it's just not enough. Like, have you ever said no to a pitch because you feel the technology wouldn't be applicable at scale? Like, for example, mm. if I come to you and I say, hey, I've created an app to deal with, like, loneliness. Yeah. And it's like, maybe the best option is just, you know, spend more time with your family and your friends. <laughs> like, maybe the app isn't the right way to go. <laughs> sure. I mean, that, that sounds like a very compelling app, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, certainly, we've said no to a lot of technologies that we believe wouldn't scale. Um, and those are relatively easier no's to say. I think the harder no's are the ones where the technology almost seems like like the hidden secret that you've been waiting for. Okay. But then like, you, you just don't have the same kind of confidence or faith in the team right. to actually bring it to fruition. Okay. Right? And, and those are always the hardest no's. Okay. Yeah. The, the ones that you have said yes without hesitation what did the team have in common there because i understand domain expertise is a big thing sure. i mean it, it look let's be honest like schools are helpful you can yeah. develop a network of course. It's, it's you know mit yeah. is never a bad thing or anything like that yeah. but what have you seen as the most like salient traits if you will it's 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 hard to describe there's this almost this this energy field that okay. surrounds the most formidable founders part of that is a bit of reality distortion. Okay. You know rationally there are risks here, but hearing the founder talk about it, you just can't see a future where they don't succeed. Right. And that's manifested in many, many different ways, but all the best founders I've talked to, like they have that quality about them. Okay. Um, there's a sense that there's an inexhaustible well of energy behind them. Okay. That even if they do encounter challenges or setbacks, that they can always draw on that. Yeah. That that they will be able to overcome. And you know, to me, I, I go back to this this always refreshed idea of what is a founder, right? What's their job? Right. And I would argue there's just two or one main thing really, which is you got to bring unfair advantages right. to your mission. And in the early days, those unfair advantages take mainly two forms. Right. It's people and money. And money really, you know, really just becomes people too. For sure. 
the founders have to convince people to do irrational things. Right. Hey, you, you have $50 million. Give me one of them. Right. <laughs> you, top engineer at Google making you know, 500K a year, make 60 here <laughs> with right. me on a, no, you know, for on, sure. on a prayer and a dream. Like, if a founder can do that and they have the energy and the charisma and the intangibles we're talking about to really make that happen, that's something really, really special. So in some ways, is it easier for investors like yourself where the tech is so important, the engineering is such a core component where, you know, you can BS quite a bit with, you know, an app on your phone versus this a different way of, you know, building clothing from like hmm. synthetic biomaterials sure. or stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you have to be cautious. Right. I mean, like you, you, could, you could take everything I said and then all of a sudden turn that into like a Theranos kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Like you have to have both. Right. And, 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 you know, especially in deep tech, you need to be able to distinguish between the one in 500, one in 100 mm -hmm. chance of success technologies. Right. And the one in 20, one in 25. Right. Right. Like that is, that is absolutely a core skill that you need to have mm. to avoid falling into the kind of pitfalls that you're hinting at. Right. And the best investors do because ultimately you still have to think about the ultimate impact only being possible if they can really build something out of this. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's that classic progression of wonderful ideas transformed into wonderful products, transformed into a sustainable business. Right. You know, can we throw some money and some time and some engineering at that stuff? Can yeah. the founder actually do that? That is just as important as anything I've said before. Absolutely. The, the, the easier part to what you said, though, is it's oftentimes easier to screen for that first thing, like the personal aspect. Right. And, and so for me, at least, I, I don't start even digging into the technology until I have a really clear sense that the founders are exceptional. Okay. And then- let me let me ask you this. In terms of like pitches, yeah. have you ever said no to one because it's too outlandish? Too outlandish. I mean, I've I've done some outlandish stuff in my time. I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, I mean, within reason, right? Like, like it has to be like you know achievable, right? Right. You know, like, but like, no, I, I don't think so. Like, some of the most outlandish stuff end up becoming the best stuff, right? Like right. that's that's the cool thing about the business. Right. right? It's, right. It's, it's, it's the weird shit that ends up making the most money. And again, this is this is the point of me waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and reminding myself I'm kind of stupid, right? <laughs> who, who am I to say anything's outlandish? I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to judge in that respect, right? Okay. I just want to really understand it. And specifically understand, well, why does the founder think that this is the best way to do something. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the interesting conversation lies. So an another quote from you, we have a crazy unfair advantage in climate investing. We're essentially looking for replacement products for the stuff people already use. Mm -hmm, that's right. is, is that a big part of the strategy where, you know, hey, if this is more efficient, yeah. costs less, yeah. and lowers emissions, I yeah. mean, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, uh, 100%, right? Like, you know, I, I I decompose risk into technical risk and market risk. Right. And you know, in the ideal scenario, there's 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 technical risk that we can underwrite and absolutely zero market risk. Right. That would be yeah. great. Right. Because you know, part of that unfair advantage is I, I get like thirty shots on goal. 
Right. And so if I find a technology that has like a one in 20 chance to work, I, I write that check every day of the week. Right. And, you know, there, there is stuff like that, right? Like, you know, if you develop a cancer vaccine, for example, right? Yeah. There's no market risk for a cancer vaccine. Like, for sure. Everyone and their mom would be lining up for that. So this lack of market risk is exactly what you uh, brought up in, in that particular quote. We, we, we get to go out there and it's not like Twitter where right. you have to speculate, hmm, will people use this weird thing that only limits you to 140 characters, right? right. Like, I don't, like me personally, I am terrible at making decisions around stuff like that. Maybe that's why I found myself in this kind of job, right? <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't have to speculate on that right. stuff. Some people have like this crazy sixth sense to be able to like understand that stuff and be crazy early. I don't. Right. Okay. But I think I am very, very good at quantifying technical risk and telling uh, and identifying the companies that have that like one in 20 shot. And I'm pretty good at identifying where the market risk is minimal as well. Is there regulatory risk involved as course, well when it yeah. comes to this stuff? Of course, yeah. So many of our industries, you know, regulatory is like a huge lever for either success or failure. And so being able to understand how to incorporate that as we think about the early stage conversations is, is a big part of what we do too. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there a vertical within like climate tech that you think isn't getting the dollars it deserves <laughs> right now? Uh, I mean, super broadly, I, I think I think we need to be thinking more about adaptation. Okay. Right. And it's it's a recognition of the fact that it it took us hundreds of years to get it to this mess. And it's gonna take us probably just as long to get out of this mess. What we're doing is hard. Right? So a- adaptation is in we get used to these evolving technologies and stuff like that? A- adapting to a much warmer world. Okay. And the realities that will usher in. Right. Right. Like, hey, like the temperature's probably gonna go up at least two degrees. Right. Right. So in terms of like, you know, climate extremities, in terms of agriculture, in terms of it just being hot to be outside in a lot of places in the world, right? How do we make sure that we can keep the party going just a while longer, right? right? Like I'm an optimist in that I see us on the brink of transforming who we are as a species. And, And that's the wondrous part of the curve that we're on. It's exponential growth. Right. We may make more progress in the next 25 years than the last 250. Yeah. And in fact, I expect it to. Mm-hmm. We got to hold our shit together. Yeah. Right. If our universe destabilizes and it's like, you know, warfare and starving people and us nuking each other, right. <laughs> we're not going to solve cancer. We're not going to be able to take this massive leap. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want to go back to the stone ages again. Right. And so that's, that's the potential here. Yeah. I mean, well, a couple of comments off there. I think you're right. Like it is this exponential curve. Mm-hmm. And like one that always gets me excited is like the time from the Wright brothers yeah. first airplane flight yeah. to when NASA That's launched right. rockets was what? There were people years? alive for both of that stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. Like friends' grandmas were like, I was there in North Carolina and like, it's crazy. No, 100%, 100% man. And I think one of the other things is like some of the environmentalists that I've talked to mm-hmm. are, I, I don't want to generalize, mm-hmm. but some of them propose degrowth. Some sure. of them don't think of like, yeah. you know, is it important for us to like have kids? And yeah. Obviously Elon talked about that yeah, quite yeah. a bit as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Kind of these two opposing forces where <laughs> on one hand, we need to make the pie bigger. Sure, sure. But at the same time, the way we make the pie bigger is by, you know, in some ways, most of the time, like ex- exploiting like yeah. technology, natural right. resources, yeah. those kinds of things. I mean, ultimately, that's, that's the best thing about technology for me. Technology enables us to do all the things we love 
uh, in just a better way. Right. Right. In a sustainable way, in a cleaner way. We don't have to think about going back to like, mm. I don't know, whether it's degrowth or austerity or just, you know, <laughs> yeah. just being poor again, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Right. Um, you know, at a higher level, I just don't think it's like important to talk about simply because if we don't do this right, isn't that always the default? Yeah. Right. It, it's like if I all of a sudden pick up a cocaine habit and a gambling habit, like, like the, the the default is degrowth for my family, right? Right? Like yes. like like. Wait, what's interesting about considering that? I got you. Yeah. There's nothing interesting <laughs> about that versus this 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 story of like hope that we could have it all, right? That actually galvanizes people to positive action. That's worth thinking about, right? That that's the only way I know of how to think about this stuff. We're almost at time. Okay, one final question. Of course. What What is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? Uh, man, what am I, what am I passionate about? Uh, that you don't get asked about a lot. I'm very passionate about education. Um, I think that's just a, such an important part of, well, civilization. Right. Uh, I'm deeply passionate about Legos. If we're talking about something a little bit lighter, uh, I have an obsession with building Legos. I, I love anything that moves, cars mostly. I'm passionate about passionate about food probably to the detriment of my own health what uh, kind of food <laughs> all of it I, I think the the best resolution i ever made was to not have favorites not have favorites yeah i just want to go out there and experience all of life right and food especially right it's like it's like you know even it's not my favorite thing like it's like where you get to eat the culmination of like culture and experience and agriculture and yeah, geography. Like it's, that's magical, right? 100%. So I, I just love experiencing that stuff. Yeah, mm. man. Like same with me. Well, food and music. Yeah. Those are the two big ones. Music is, is amazing. I, I mean, music is the thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's one of the things I hold on to a lot. Like when I was growing up, my passion was music. I wanted to be a composer. I thought I'd spend most of my life just making music. And in a lot of ways, and this is my lack of uh, compassion coming out. My therapist listening. Uh, I, I still blame myself for not being courageous enough to be a musician. But if, if, you know, if, if I was going to leave the job I do now, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go and try to just make music if I could. All right. Well, let's. You know what? We'll do this. Favorite <laughs> book, favorite composer, or favorite musician. Composer. That's a tough one. Again, I, I, my resolution is not to choose favorites. I'll, I'll, <laughs> so growing up, Beethoven was my idol. Uh, like, like he, he was a he was a forward thinking musician. You know, some of the ways he thought about music was directly impactful into ushering in the Romantic era of classical music. Right. Um, but just the adversity he overcame, it, it was always clear to me, even when I didn't like know how to put into words, that he had to do it. You know, there was a piece of him that had to come out through his music. And you could take away his hearing. You could take away his happiness. You could take away almost every aspect of this human being. And the music would still have to manifest in some ways. And right. that, th there's something just super powerful and attractive about that to me. That's awesome. Um, in terms of books, man, there's a lot. Again, not choosing favorites. Uh, I like history a lot. So like anything historical to learn from the different patterns of the past, like the great people that have lived before us, I, all of that stuff is just really, really amazing. I, don't, I can't think of any like, favorite history work at this moment. Yeah. How, how, let's leave it. We'll leave it with this one. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you or Laura Carbon, yep. what's the best way to do that? Just email me, right? Like <laughs> my, I, again, I, my job is to talk to people. And my attitude is always, if you're trying to make the world a better place, 
we're already on the same team. And if there's anything I can do to help while you're on that journey, that is exactly why I'm here. So well, that's awesome. Just email me. I'm, I'm glad we got to talk today. So thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me. Cheers. Thank okay. you for the time.